0: Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm all right. Starting to get cold out there. A little rainy. I saw You
1: you came over with your rain slicker on.
0: I had my rain slicker on, like Paddington Bear, (laughs) just trying to stay warm. And dry out there.
1: You looked like a like an ad for Columbia outdoor wear. Thank
0: you. Ruggedly handsome, looking like I'm I'm ready to go out there and knock out 14 miles of hiking with a pack loaded pack on my back.
1: You okay? Let me let me amend my earlier no, I, statement. No, I think I
0: got your drift. I think I knew what you were getting at, man. <laughs> you looked like if you looking took... like I stepped off the pages of a catalog. Yeah, per that, usual. If
1: that catalog was left out in the rain
0: in my driveway for a couple of days i mean you i don't you you're trying to walk it back i think we all know what you meant the first time meanwhile i, I come over here i do. catch you wearing your pro wrestling t-shirt and your uh what is that roots of fight
1: that's shirt that is accurate
0: smoking joe frazier that's right i mean i'm no one's trying to say we're both not looking good right <laughs> i'm glad How's no one's that? trying to say it. no Show no me. one's trying to say we're not looking good so yeah double negatives there you go oh. We got music again this week from our new friend of the podcast, The Fifth Element, the music producer out of Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for today's tunes. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at thefacebook.com slash The Fifth Element, over on Twitter at The Fifth Element, or on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element. Now, when you say The Facebook, uh huh,
1: TheFacebook.com, is that also spelled T H A? Or is that? Yes. Just...
0: Yeah, T-H-A in the okay. word. Uh. Once again, this episode of the Co Main Event podcast is sponsored by Fulton and Rourke, a men's grooming company with products built for the way guys operate. This week, the distinguished gentlemen at Fulton and Rourke are bumping up the savings for CME listeners. Ben, tell them all about it. You just go to FultonAndRourke.com backslash CME
1: to sign up for their mailing list and get 20% off your next order. That will keep you up on the latest things coming out at R. They promise not to write more than once a week or so, and like the
0: Breakfast of Champions email, it's very easy to unsubscribe. Are you looking for ideas on how to use that 20% discount? Fulton & Rourke recommends the Shackleford Solid Cologne for this time of year. It's pretty great. Sandalwood with amber and hints of leather give off a vibe that is both masculine yet sophisticated me personally i just re-upped on the foamless shaving cream and i was reminded this week what an absolute joy it can be to shave with that stuff then you hop in the shower scrub yourself down with the triple milled bar soap lather on a little bit of fulton and rourke face wash hop out wipe down your face with their aftershave cloths dab on just a little shackleford and my friends you are good to go
1: You can get all that and anything else you like at 20% off by going to FultonAndRourke.com slash CME and signing up for the FNR mailing list today.
0: Three rounds, as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, what to make of a bantamweight so terrifying that even John Dodson looks a little bit nervous to be in there with him. And yes, when I said bantamweight, I put that in air quotes. I
1: saw you. You did it.
0: And in round number two, you know, the danger with saying every UFC fighter should promote themselves like Conor McGregor is that some poor bedraggled soul like Jeremy Stevens might actually try. And in round number three, have you guys noticed at the end of the UFC 204 commercial where Dan Henderson kind of mumbles almost to himself, eh, you can't rewrite history. And it sounds like he either feels some regret over his own choices or like he's just as ambivalent about this matchup with Michael Bisping as the rest of us. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, Is it just me or are the penalties for missing weight really unfair to the fighter who did make weight? 20% of a fighter's purse sounds nice, but what if the fatty had a shitty manager? Then you get 20% of what? $8,000? Just to get laid on and DX'd for your professionalism? <laughs> I
1: get it DX'd,
0: okay. Yeah. Uh, discuss this, as well as uh, potential solutions, if you would. Um,
1: You missed something. There. This goes on to claim Oh, about John Dodson? Yeah. John
0: Dodson got robbed, not in the fight, as much as his bonus, all because his opponent. All because of his opponent. Discuss this, as well as potential solutions, if you would. You see, that was my
1: first uh, assumption, too, about what happened there. How you noticed there was no fight of the night bonus given out. And it seemed like people... It's kind of easy to draw the line there and say, wait a minute. So John Lineker misses weight, therefore becomes ineligible for bonuses. And so they don't get fight of the night, even though it's pretty clearly the fight of the night. And that kind of screws John Dodson. And I asked Sean Shelby at the UFC about that. Uh, and he claimed that that was not what happened. That And he said, and I, you know, I vaguely remembered maybe this happening, that it had been the case before where somebody had missed weight, but the fight was awesome. And they did get fight of the night, and they just gave the other guy both bonuses. Yeah. Um, I. Neither one of us could really remember exactly when that happened, but I, I do think that probably happened at some point, so he claims that it was not it didn't have anything to do with lineker missing weight
0: well but, the u f c did give out four fight of the or performance of the night bonuses right,
1: but no fight of the night no bonus. they didn't
0: give out one for fight of the night, but they did they did give out two hundred thousand right. dollars in performance of the night bonuses just if you were in case you were wondering if they' are still doing that yeah when they could just be you know distributing it, distributing it equally among the fighters here we go with that again uh. The penalties for missing
1: weight. This is a good point, especially because, and different commissions do it differently, but if it, it it ought to be some kind of a sliding scale, don't you think? If it's 20% if you miss by half a pound, then it shouldn't also be 20% if you miss by five or six pounds.
0: Right, because that makes, that makes no discernible difference between John Lineker coming in a half pound overweight and Alex Oliveira coming in like six and a half pounds overweight, right? I think five and a half pounds over the the one pound allowance but yeah sure yeah yeah and
1: there should be a there and but also it seems like the the way we treat missed weight cuts basically it's kind of another dundasso type situation where if you're the guy who did who does make weight if you're will brooks in that scenario and alex Oliveira misses weight you can't really say you know what i'm not fighting the guy give me my show money or whatever, you know, he missed weight so badly, I'm not taking that fight. I mean, technically, you would be within your rights to say that, but people will let you have it, man, and the UFC would let you have it. Nobody would be happy with that decision. So you have to take that fight, basically, and it's kind of a bad deal for you.
0: Yeah, uh, it, I would. I actually thought about that on fight night once I noticed that the the last two fights were both going to be catch weights because both those guys had missed weight, If whether or not I should add that to the official Dundasso manual. Because especially in the case of Alex Oliveira, that I think we're going to talk about a little bit more uh, in the next question, uh, definitely use that to his advantage. Right. Like you can like John Lineker missing weight is notable because he's done it five times now at two different weight classes. And he would probably be like if John Lineker had not missed weight for this fight with John Dodson right now, we would be like, you know, if they if if they wanted him to be next up. For Dominic Cruz instead of Cody Garbrandt, we'd be okay with that. Now, it seems like, frankly, a chance you just can't take to have a guy who is as undependable as John Lineker uh, fighting for the title or, I think, like worst case scenario, being your champion, right? (laughs) Because history tells us he ain't going to be champion for long or champion forever, I guess, depending on how you look at it. You'd (laughs) think he would get stripped of the title if he came in overweight for his own title defense, but... Uh, yeah, you can't have a dude fight for the title even if he's coming in just uh, one and a half pounds over the weight that he would have to make for, for a championship op- opportunity. But like, you, the weight, I don't know, necessarily played a factor in this fight with John Dodson. But Alex Oliveira's win over Will Brooks, well, shit, man, that just looked like a welterweight out there fighting a lightweight, which is exactly what it was. Right. And uh, you know, the, just the nature of the fight, which, like I said, I think we'll talk about it in a little bit, uh, seemed like the weight played a a huge factor. In the outcome of that fight, and so to consider that the same thing deserving of the same penalty as what John Lineker did is kind of weird. It is kind of weird. Like maybe you know every half pound you you miss an extra so start hitting them in the pocket, an extra one well, percent. Some 10%, commissions 10%, I think whatever. do
1: do that where if you miss over like you know if you're over four or five pounds over or something, then it's they take take an extra percentage of your money, and I think that makes sense because otherwise if you realize you're going to miss. And, you know, you're still like if you get to where you're, you know, a half pound over or a pound over and you realize I'm not going to make it, might as well start putting some of that weight back on. Right.
0: Yeah. And and let the other guy kill himself. Right? right. Trying to get down to the to the prescribed weight. The other thing about missing weight is I think that we are going to remember it in the case of these two fights because John Lineker has made such a practice out of missing weight and because. Uh, Cowboy Oliveira against Will Brooks was such a kind of strange matchup to begin with uh, that we will remember it. But I, th- I feel like it's the kind of thing you forget. Yeah. Of, like somewhere down the road, like, you know, we remember Chuck Liddell for having a ton of knockouts. We don't necessarily remember all the dudes that he thumbed in the eye. Fifteen seconds before he knocked him out. I know you remember that. I, re- I remember when he did it to to, to the god. <laughs> Your guy Randy, Randy Couture. Randy Couture and the other one he slipped on a damn sticker on the canvas. <laughs> talk about that. Uh, you know, you end up you end up kind of getting away with it. I think is the is the overall point. Like if you miss weight and and win the fight six eight months from now, most people are probably going to forget. Oh yeah, you came in heavy for that fight. And
1: the flip side for the other guy. If when they're looking at your run later on, and they're saying like, okay, this guy lost two of his last three, or like he he had a good winning streak and then it got stopped here. As time goes by, they're less likely to remember. Oh yeah, well you lost that one, but it was against a guy who came in heavy, and so you were at a disadvantage. They don't they don't really cut you that slack, uh, especially as you said. You know, you get six months down the road. Shit, man. By that time, there's already been forty UFC
0: events. We can't keep all that stuff in our minds. Uh. Next question this week comes to us from Todd Twomey, who writes, so the Brazilian cowboy was upset with Will Brooks because he, Will Brooks, called him a quote unquote motherfucker at the weigh-in. Apparently he took this as an insult to his own mother? Question mark. This got me thinking, what does motherfucker even mean? Who better to ask than two masters of literacy as well as uh, four letter insults? I've called, I've, see, I think we're missing a word here uh but it basically says i've called good friends goofs motherfuckers every day for the past 20 years uh so yeah we had this situation where alex oliveira obviously came in pretty heavy for his fight against will brooks ended up winning the fight uh you know arguably in a in a fight where it seemed like the weight was a factor will brooks suffered some kind of rib injury uh and then when it was over Alex Oliveira, who up to this point has been kind of a likable fellow, I would argue in the UFC, uh, went ahead and did the early '90s DX crotch chop.
1: Also, at though, Will after Brooks, the
0: and then like the, kind uh, of the Godfather, right? Yeah, the like Italian, Italian, mom, Italian like chin gesture. flick under the chin, fuck you gesture, uh, which obviously was controversial. And a lot of people made the point: Hey, man, you miss weight. Maybe you then, aside from twenty percent of your purse, also forfeit the right to talk trash after it's over. Yeah, I I wonder if this is – because I heard this too, that where he said, oh, he
1: said some stuff about my family after we got in an argument over the missed weight. And I thought, wow, that seems a little odd. Okay. Could this really be it? That he really interpreted the term motherfucker to mean like he was literally being accused of having sex with his mother? And if so, if that's what Alex Oliveira thought that this word means, what must he think of
0: the Diaz brothers? <laughs> or Dana White, for God's <laughs> sake. <Yes>. Right? <laughs> Well, I mean, not that we want to get into a conversation about etymology, but like, yeah, the word "motherfucker" is considered an insult because it implies you have sex with your mother, right? Uh, but at the same time, time, practical usage, more of a flavoring word <laughs> at this point, especially where used. And, and like, this is this is honestly the the email from Todd Twomey is the first I've heard that this was the extent of the infraction that Will Brooks allegedly committed against Alex Oliveira and does make it seem like he quote unquote said something about my family is pushing it <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like kind of or a just a mistranslation I guess yeah uh, uh, you would think that that Portuguese would have a a similarly translatable insult though right and that would be you know not to paint with a broad brush but given what I know about Brazilian MMA fighters I would think the their use of the word motherfucker would be just as common as anyone else's. They that's seem a, like dudes a who would point. say a motherfucker, but maybe <laughs> everyone does in this in this sport. I don't know. Have you ever
1: heard uh, John Danaher's riff on the Diaz brothers' usage of motherfucker? No, I have not. It's great. You can look it up on YouTube, and I think it was you know him sitting around the, on the mats with George St. Pierre. I think when George was getting ready to fight Nick Diaz, and he has a very like stoic, logical uh, speech about how. Despite what the word motherfucker seems to imply, Nick Diaz does not use it in this fashion. He uses it to mean human being. Right.
0: I was, I was going to say, I wonder what the percentage of UFC fights are where somebody gets called a motherfucker at the weigh-in. Because I would think a conservative estimate would be like 30% maybe, <laughs> like one in three, don't you think? <laughs> just somebody gets called a motherfucker? It, and if
1: Joe Rogan is there in the building, then it goes up to at least 40%.
0: Yeah, that's called the Rogan effect. Yeah. Right? Highly well-documented. Next question this week comes to us from Marcel Davis, who writes, Jose Aldo announced this week his desire to be released from his UFC contract, to which the UFC said, No way, Jose! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, see what you did. This time, this isn't the first time Aldo has expressed displeasure with the way the UFC operates, but after looking at his grievances, one can't help but sympathize. In addition to what everyone knows about the UFC lying to Aldo about rematching Conor McGregor again, uh, Jose Revealed that he has never received a locker room bonus. The famous bonuses Dana White and the UFC have used to refute claims of low fighter pay. Jose Aldo's revelations about the UFC and the fact that he is arguably the biggest name in a long list of high profile fighters to have decided to leave the UFC surely must mean more will follow suit. I leave that question for you. Uh, will Jose Alzo refusing to work for the UFC have any sort of impact on how the UFC does business, especially considering how susceptible their new celebrity owners are to controversy? Uh, did Jose Aldo really say he's never received a locker room bonus at all? I didn't hear that. I didn't. I didn't that's, again, the first I've heard of it here in the uh, listener mail section of our podcast. You're saying this podcast. might be an
1: unverified listener mail rant? Yeah, because, I mean, that would surprise me. That would surprise me as well. Um, but as to the question about... And I I see this popping up a lot, you know, Jose Aldo saying he's not going to fight for the UFC anymore. Does that set up a a thing where more people are going to follow that lead? I think a lot depends on how this all plays out. Because right now, all we have is, you know, fighter gets mad at the UFC, declares himself done forever with them, and... You and I would not be surprised in two weeks' time if Jose Aldo has a fight booked with the UFC.
0: Right, yeah. We've seen Jose Aldo do this kind of stuff before, not this specific thing. And frankly, the idea that Jose Aldo would be the guy to test the legality of a UFC contract in court seems exciting to me. But uh, Jose Aldo has made a practice, let's just say, of spouting off at the mouth and then kind of walking it back saying
1: he was m- mistranslated on. saying yeah. he
0: was mistranslated His or quote. saying uh or or you know just just kind of backing off from whatever it was he said he's done that in a in a in several different instances and if i had to guess and this is after all just a guess i would wager this might turn out to be one of those instances where he says he's not going to fight for the ufc again and once it becomes clear to him like hey man like basically you are the featherweight champion you just beat Frankie Edgar, you know, go fight Max Holloway or something, and eventually Conor McGregor will either get stripped or will have to come down to 145 to fight you, and frankly, if it means that much to you to fight him again, go up to 155 or it seems like McGregor will make his home, I feel like some sense will be could be talked into. Not that I necessarily think that that is quote-unquote sense, but I feel like Jose Aldo more likely than not has not been seen for the last time in the UFC octagon. I agree. I also, though, think that when he makes the
1: point that, hey, look, this is what the UFC told me was going to happen, and then something completely different happens, so how can I believe them now?
0: Um, More power to you on that one,
1: brother. Yeah, and that's one where I think that the UFC needs to to think about that, Uh, not just with Jose Aldo, but kind of in general, because it seems like there are plenty of instances where they kind of play fast and loose with people's trust, uh, especially with their fighters, and that you can't do that forever before that has real consequences, especially since you rely on the ability at times to be able to tell these guys, look, play it cool for now, and later on it's all going to work out for you. Whether you tell them that when it comes to like money and contract negotiations or title shots and opportunities, the UFC has made kind of a habit of that, of just being like, play ball with us now, and it'll all work out for you in the future, we'll take care of you later on, we'll get you back and if a lot of people start feeling like you know what you're lying to me you're screwing me around just to get me to do what you want uh and then you know you'll you'll change your mind to suit your own preferences uh when the time comes you're not going to be able to do that anymore and you get enough fighters kind of bucking that system and then you do have a problem
0: yeah and it would almost seem like doing business that way might be a bad idea to begin with
1: well if you're for fighter, the fighters that's one thing i've always wondered was the fighters is they are maybe just because this is the way they're used to the system working is just that okay. No one can tell you what you need to do to get a title shot in right. the UFC. You you can't just say like all right I'll beat all the people ranked ten through two and then I'll be the only one. like that in itself will not guarantee you anything. Right. And they don't have anything in their contracts that can tell them okay do this and this, which makes you wonder why not. I mean I I suspect why not is just because that's how the UFC has done it for so long that everybody comes in and they say hey look you know Cain Velasquez had the same contract are you saying that you're you're better than Cain Velasquez you know you Conor McGregor has the same contract you know you can't be the person who comes in and says I need to have it put in my contract if I win these fights I get a, a title shot and yet that would seem to be the more logical orderly way to do this business
0: right and i guess you know as a guy personally who has a lot of experience signing independent contractor agreements with large corporations i know you probably do as well uh I know just from my own experience exactly where the power lies, right? Like there's definitely this feeling of uh you can ask for more money, you can take issue with stuff that's in, you know, the standard contract that you're asked to sign uh and and the the employer can either take that out or not or you know, you know uh accede to your demands or or uh negotiations for more more money or not. And at the end of the day like you kind of need to sign that contract more than they need you to sign it. In a lot of instances, maybe that's not true for guys like Jose Aldo, Conor McGregor, and Ben Foulkes, Uh But the big time guys, what uh, you're saying. yeah, I, I empathize. Is what I'm saying a little bit with the situation that uh, normal regular everyday people are in when they have to sign these independent contractor agreements with large corporations. Uh, I just scrolled through Jose Aldo's Wikipedia page quickly. It looks like he has won six performance-based of the night bonuses uh, going back to his WEC days. And I would be astonished to learn that in roughly 17 fights in the UFC and WEC that Jose Aldo had not received any of the, of the like wink, 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 nudge, nudge bonuses that the UFC Uh, at least allegedly typically handles that, hands out. I would find that to be very surprising. So would I. Uh, and if that's the case, man, that dude has a legitimate gripe as far as I'm concerned. Last question this week comes to us from Roland Bleasy. He writes, so Tyron Woodley had had some interesting things to say about the racial component of why he's been roundly criticized for doing exactly the same thing. Michael Bisping and Conor McGregor have been given a pass for cherry picking fights for a number of reasons. Whenever racism in MMA is mentioned, there is gnashing of teeth and mass denial. But it seems there has to be more to this issue. Uh Would you two hardworking blue collar parentheses see what I did there? Gentlemen, take to care to dis- discourse this. Uh I do see what you did there yeah we're I gonna get it. we're just gonna punch the time clock and and go to work on this one with our deceptive speed. That's right. we're gonna run really precise routes <laughs> yeah. while we uh while we answer this question uh I was surprised that Tyron Woodley seemed to be uh roundly booed at that u f c two o five press conference in at Madison Square Garden, yeah by fans
1: i I wondered if that was a reaction to Tyron Woodley himself or did a bunch of people are there are There are a lot of Wonder Man fans out there?
0: Yeah, you think that he the Wonder Man uh, fan base travels well up from, what, South Carolina, North Carolina? But
1: he, but he trains out there right now at, at oh, that's Longo, right. yeah. at Sarah's place. So maybe.
0: So maybe that had more to do with they, the booze than just like a negative reaction to him uh, cherry picking those fights. But like, it is a legitimate point that he has received a lot of criticism for that. Right. Uh, criticism that I didn't necessarily think was warranted. And we've heard this kind of stuff from fighters before. You know, when Rashad Evans first broke into the UFC, uh, it seemed to me he was pretty vocal about the idea that maybe uh, he was looked at in a certain way because he was an African-American fighter. And that, like, some of his unpopularity, at least he attributed to that, whereas, you know, uh, a white fighter who acted the same way that Rashad Evans acted might be lauded, like, say, I don't know, Conor McGregor, which seems, you know, a, a fairly... Uh, easy comparison to make, considering that when Rashad Evans broke in, he was considered quote-unquote cocky, right? Right. Well, yeah, and I think that that's
1: not the only example of that. You've seen uh, a few different cases like that where it does seem like you get a different standard applied to to black fighters. And I, I guess, you know, if if you want to make the case that the it's the MMA f- fan base as it is right now, that it's kind of overwhelmingly white and male, that's probably true, uh, and so there's definitely got to be some aspect of that. I also, though, think one of the things that this uh, this statement kind of misses, that, hey, Tyrone Woodley is getting flack that other guys didn't get. I mean, Bisping has gotten that flack for asking for the Dan Henderson fight. There are plenty of people, Jacare Souza himself included, uh, being like, hey, wait a minute. You're, you're running away from these fights. You're running to what you think is an easier fight, uh, trying to hold on to that title for a little longer. So, like, he did get that flack. I think it's just that in a case like with Bisping, you feel like giving him flack is part of the reason you like to have him around. It doesn't even feel like you're, you're speaking negatively on Bisping. It feels like you're playing Bisping's game. And with McGregor, him, you know, you want to say he's cherry picking fights he's cherry picking tougher fights uh for himself in a lot of ways so i think you know you're right though that he he does have a different standard applied to him um but i guess the first thing i thought when i heard tyron woodley making that that complaint was good for him for being willing to speak up on it because you know and you have to know especially if you believe that that is true that the fans are that there's a racial component to why the fans are not really embracing you and why they're going to be harder on you than other people then you know you didn't just make it easier for yourself by bringing it up you know by by being vocal about it up front, you know that if those people already had some kind of racial component to their feelings about you, they're probably gonna be bigger jerks to you now um but you know i I applaud him for being willing to to take that on anyway, uh because I think a lot of fighters would have shied away from that,
0: yeah, it seems really weird to me that to dislike tyron woodley for for you know on on almost any ground since since like he really just kind of broke into the even more mainstream mixed martial arts stardom you know with with his title victory it seems like you would have to kind of go looking for reasons to dislike tyron woodley to me at this point although i mean that being said it does seem like there it remains a disconnect between some a certain like segment of fans and the idea that we're not making the fights strictly a, you know strictly adhering to the ufc rankings which i feel like is a thing that has well first of all i mean the ufc rankings are bullshit we all we all know that we're i feel like we're all probably on the same page with that <laughs> i feel one. like we are but like i feel like to not have noticed that there has been a decided shift in ufc matchmaking over the two two last two or three years toward these like more promotable and less pure sport based fights like you you have really not been paying attention because that has been one of the dominant storylines, I would argue, in the sport over the last few years. So, like, for people to take issue with Tyron Woodley trying to do that now that he's the champion, I, f- I think is weird. And even though I know we're going to talk more about this as we move into our rounds this week, I felt like people taking issue with Conor McGregor getting a shot of the lightweight title was also like, I hear you. But you haven't been paying attention because right. we're dealing with a different set of rules and that's now.
1: What we said about Tyron Woodley earlier when he after, you know, basically immediately begun, upon becoming the champ was like, here are the fights I want. Big money fights like GSP or Nick Diaz and everybody was like, wait a minute, that makes no sense. You have to fight the Wonder Man. And he was saying, yeah, I don't think that'll move a ton of pay-per-views, which he was right probably, you know, unless it was added to a huge fight card like this one. That's already going to do a bunch of pay-per-views. And what we said then is you can't blame Tyron Woodley because he has been paying attention. He has been looking around and saying, okay, this is how you get rich in the UFC, so this is what I'm going to do. And I don't see how you could blame the guy for that.
0: That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on tuesday through friday when we're not recording the podcast something always happens some news always breaks it's short it's informative we'd like to think it was it's funny it's delivered straight to your inbox it's easy for you and it's also very simple to unsubscribe as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one The main event of UFC Fight Night 96 from Portland, Oregon on Saturday night was meant to be an important bantamweight contender fight between arguably the hard and hardest hittingest 135 pound men in the entire Ultimate Fighting Championship. Of course, we all know John Lineker came in just a wee bit heavy uh, for this fight against John Dodson, so it had to be converted converted to a catch weight. Uh, nonetheless. A fairly impressive showing, I thought, by both guys in what turned out to be uh, a spirited and interesting fight. That that John Lineker ended up winning by split decision. Uh, were you, I guess, just to open up conversation about this, and we can talk a little bit about where John Lineker may be heading and what this means for John Dodson as we move along here. But like, uh, were you surprised at all by anything in this fight, either Lineker's ability to keep up? Uh, over five rounds and not really slow down very much or were you surprised by john dodson uh, taking what might be described as a carlos condit versus nick diaz approach to this fight uh, and and trying to use his mobility to to uh, slow down and get out of the way of the power puncher
1: as to the second one i would say i'm not surprised motherfuckers and i want that clarified that i'm not actually accusing you of any sexual congress well
0: Any taunts and or trash talk that I engage in later can be traced back to this moment and how angry I feel right now at the things you've said, not about me, but about my family.
1: Uh, We talked about this fight last week and how basically if you're John Dodson, that was going to be the key, is not getting sucked into the John Lineker game where he pins you against the fence and you both plant your feet and throw um, because he's going to win that. And even there were a couple times here where you could see him kind of getting pulled into it But he maintained, for the most part, the discipline, I thought, that he probably came in there hoping he could maintain. Stuck with that movement a lot, did not stand still for him for too long. But the problem that does create is if you go to a decision... Judges a lot of time, even if you're outlanding the other guy by doing that, what they see is they see you fleeing. And right. they, you know, that same thing that we say about how it's hard to win a decision backing up. It's hard to win a decision on the move that much when the other guy is the one marching forward, even if you're catching him as he's coming forward. It's just visually for judges that kind of confuses them.
0: Yeah, I will say I was impressed both with John Lineker's ability to seemingly throw murderous um uh, like heavy handed strikes throughout all 25 minutes of this. And I was also impressed with the guy's chin because he got kicked right in his face a few times uh, by John Dodson. And not only did he not like get knocked down or knocked out, it didn't seem like it bothered him in the slightest. Nope. And that made this fight seem like kind of a zombie movie to me. Like John Lineker was just going to keep coming, keep walking forward, uh, keep trying to pin Dodson against the fence. And he was not going to, you know, be vulnerable to any manner of strikes and and, and that John Dodson was going to be uh, forced into this game plan for the full 25 minutes. It does seem like a risky game plan on the part of John Dodson, even though I think according to the fight metric statistics, he did, in fact, outland John Lineker, at least in total number of strikes over the course of this fight. Obviously, that doesn't tell the whole story, but it's uh, it, it certainly stands in, in opposite of any, like, uh argument that all he did was flee uh and in fact in a lot of exchanges i thought john dodson got the better of like the actual punching uh yeah. like it seemed like he was doing a really good job landing uh his counters and, and then getting out of the way of john Lineker's much harder punches but you're right like it is like any time you opt for that that game plan of kind of like e- evading your opponent and and landing counter strikes it does turn off a certain amount of viewers, and it's hard, I think, for the judges to award you uh, the win there. I would, I would honestly like to talk to some coaches about that, uh, just because it would seem like that that would make it tough to. Because, like, if you're John Dodson, maybe, maybe you assume you're going to knock John Lineker out when you kick him in the face. But if not, it seems like you're trying to win this thing by decision. Like, that's the most likely outcome here, and that seems like a hard strategy to go about doing it uh with or maybe you're
1: hoping that the guy will get tired if he has to keep following you around the cage all night. Yeah. Uh
0: but the and I guess like the counter argument to that is like I don't know what else you do. That seems like the the best, smartest, and perhaps only game plan to avoid a guy or to fight to like actually fight a guy like John Leonard. Because if you don't do that, you're playing straight into his hands, which seems stupid and like borderline suicidal against a guy like this.
1: See that's what I was going to say is when you mentioned that it is a risky strategy for as far as uh, impressing the judges, and I think you're right. But what's the alternative? Because right. if the alternative is like, all right, he's going to keep marching forward and trying to get right in my face, I'm going to stand here and meet him when he comes. That's how John Lineker has won a bunch of these fights, even some of the fights that we thought he wasn't going to win. Uh, you know, even the, the one against Michael McDonald, where we started to say, okay, wait a minute, he can't do it at bantamweight. He's too short. He's too small. Uh, and he can if he can get you to stand still for him long enough, uh, right in his punching range. So, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what you want to do. I mean, I think some of that, you know, John Lineker might complain or it seemed at, at times frustrated in the fight by John Dodson's movement. Yeah. But that, to me, you know, it, it wasn't like he was trying to just avoid fighting. He was just trying to fight under his terms. If you don't like it, cut off the cage on him, man. Don't just follow him around in circles all night long. That's, that's kind of on you. Uh, it's not on the other guy to fight exactly the style that you want to have fight. But I do think... It makes me wonder how long a guy like John Lineker can keep doing this because he is not worried about getting hit at all, as you said. He's willing to walk right into punches if it gets him in a range where he can hit you back. But especially as you get higher up in a division like bantamweight, it seems like pretty soon somebody's just going to eat you apart like that. And you're not going to be able – you're not going to have a 15-year career of walking face-first into punches.
0: Yeah, let's talk about what might be next for John Lineker, because obviously you have him missing weight for the fifth time in his career. Uh, Now in two different weight classes, the whole point of him coming up to bantamweight from flyweight was that he wouldn't miss weight anymore. He wouldn't have to cut as much weight. Uh, And he had been doing a pretty good job making making the weight in his first several appearances. Uh, at 135 pounds. Uh, this was his fourth fight in a row there in the UFC, also his fourth win at 135 pounds, but he missed this one, came in at 136.5. Uh, I don't know, it, it seems like, in like a, I don't know how many guys can say they've missed weight in two different weight classes in the UFC. That seems like kind of a, a novel thing almost. Uh, but it does like cloud the future of John Lineker a little bit because if he didn't have that trouble making the weight, it seems like, like I said earlier in the show, he would be almost a shoe-in as a top contender in the bantamweight division right now. But, you know, both because of that trouble and because you've got this kind of like brewing feud between Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt, we might see that fight first. But it just seems like not only is John Lindinger not going to get a title shot right away, it feels to me like I'm not sure exactly what he could do at this point to prove to you that like him missing weight is no longer a concern, period, moving forward. Okay, well, to play devil's advocate on this, would you be at
1: all moved by the argument that, hey, three Brazilian dudes missed weight on this card, and they all claim that it was due to the travel, basically, having to, you know, a long trip from Brazil to get to the lovely Pacific Northwest, uh the fine city of Portland, and that that, that added travel is what made them have so much trouble with their weight cuts because it wasn't like it was just John Lineker that missed. He missed. Alex Oliveira missed. Hakren Diaz missed too. And they all kind of blamed the travel, which I mean, okay, I would, you could always argue American fighters go down to Brazil all the time. You know, going to Portland can't be that much f- further than uh, going to other points. You know, it's not like what they asked him to go to Alaska or something to fight this. So it's not that much more time in a plane. However, would you be, if you're the UFC, looking at that and saying, well, he only missed by half a pound and three Brazilians missed on this card, so maybe there was something going on.
0: Anytime a dude misses by only half a pound, you feel like, they're, like something must have gone wrong. Uh, almost mechanically. And I think, one like, you say Lineker blamed this on the travel. Like, the the story that I saw from his manager seemed like he blamed it on a litany of issues. Like, the travel, perhaps a faulty scale, that said he was on weight when he, actually he was a little bit over. And I also saw a story that said he was on weight a few days early. And it's then true. he ate some stuff, which, as a as a humanist, I understand. <laughs> I feel you, John Lineker. Uh, but, like, especially for a guy like John Lineker... You kind of have to go the extra mile to make sure that you are on weight for the fight because you have this established track record of missing weight. And that kind of resume is important in this sport. And like I said, five times now at two different weight classes, I honestly don't know like how many times this dude has to make weight in a row now before we can be like, well... That part of his career is over, and now we can trust he'll make 135 enough to like give him a shot at the title.
1: Maybe what he needs to do is go on kind of a a guerrilla campaign during his regular day to day life of trying to convince Sean Shelby, where he'll just like he'll send him these texts, just Snap like pic- a picture of, of him scale. on the scale, yeah, or just like of him like out to dinner and being like, you know, nope, that's a picture of my salad, no croutons on that baby because I I told him no, thank you, <laughs> just I, dressing on the side, yeah, put the dressing on the side. Uh, everyone's going out for wings i'm having water with lemon uh you know just keep sending them these these text photos to show that you're serious about this no no problem here
0: maybe so and like the thing about john lineker is i feel like he could be a marketable person at 135 pounds because he knocks people out and he hits so hard and he has that haircut that looks like he's in a misfits cover band only for people under five foot five (laughs) right uh I feel like he could be kind of a player in this division and a, and a person that other people would like to watch, which frankly is, is trouble, you know, under 155 pounds, you have a hard time finding those kind of draws. Uh, and so like he could be a, a, a legitimate promotional guy in that weight. And it kind of stinks that he can't make the weight uh, reliably. So we'll see moving forward. What what happens? I thought floated that, you know, him against TJ Dillashaw, hashtag would watch uh, him against, you know, even Brian Caraway, any of the guys up there at the, at the top, you know, five or six, I would be interested in fighting. A weird instance here where I also feel like John Dodson didn't lose that much uh, steam or stock in this fight because he easily could have won it. I thought he, he had a good fight and, and you know, coming back up also to Bantamweight from Flyweight, I feel like he keeps a lot of his momentum and will get another uh, name brand fight moving forward.
1: Man, I would watch the hell out of a Little Guy Misfits cover band.
0: I know, right? Yeah. You can't, you can't be over 5'5". Five, five.
1: Yeah, and just all of them out there in, like, leather vests and shit.
0: Yeah. Good work, I'm telling you. Uh, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Sure. And then we'll move on to uh, round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Chad, I don't know if you saw this. I found this on
1: MiddleEasy.com today. Pictures of what appears to be Darren Elkins getting a tattoo on his chest yeah. that says The Damage.
0: Yeah, I knew this was coming. I assume keen long-time listeners of the Co-Main Event podcast won multiple betting pools about whether or not one of our Are You Fucking Kidding Me's would be about Darren Elkins' new tattoo. It's not so much that the tattoo is bad. It's just that, like,
1: on him, something about, you know, he's got that kind of, like, you know, boy next door from the 1950s haircut. Yeah. And he just looks like such a mild-mannered, one would even say almost boring dude, and then to have a big tattoo across his chest that says The Damage. Yeah. It feels like
0: something that somebody, like, did to him against his will you know <laughs> well and then i said this before we came on the air we were admiring the pictures of the new ink it looks like in the picture of his face like he is, it seems to me he's making a face where even he is like i thought this was going to look cooler before <laughs> i actually got the tattoo
1: and there's a picture i think of him and the tattoo artist the tattoo artist very proud of his work judging by his uh, facial expression darren elkins Maybe having a little bit of buyer's remorse when it comes to that tattoo.
0: Now, we talked about this I'm also, but, like, me. No, you fucking get me? Does it seem like the tattoo is supposed to look like a scar to you? Like, like, like the actual lettering? Like, it looks like it's supposed to look like it's carved into his chest, kind
1: of? Yeah, and, like, maybe, like, it's been sewn, so, like, tr- an attempt has been made to sew it closed?
0: I feel like this is a font issue, right, with this tattoo? Part of it is a font issue. Right. Yeah. But, like, if it said the damage in Helvetica, or, like, Arial Bold... Still be weird, but I think he would have a better chance of it coming out looking better. I also want to know, did
1: did no one in his life talk to him about this beforehand and maybe suggest another means of putting his, his uh, nickname on his body somewhere? Doesn't I don't want to I don't wanna go hashtag statue. old
0: man Dundas here. But does he know that's there forever? Do <laughs> you kids know that those tattoos are there forever? Ben positive are you fucking kidding me alert how about our guy brandon moreno from this weekend this dude gets the call for a short notice ufc fight while he's while the season of the ultimate fighter that he's on is still technically airing on television i say technically because we all know that i have to take everyone's word for that he rolls into this fight with a top 10 flyweight in lewis smolka like it ain't no thing and not only does Moreno rock the unusual mix of having the nickname Assassin Baby, which I have questions, <laughs> I have questions, but he also has a multicolored Mickey Mouse tattoo on his back, chokes out Louis Smoka in the first round, and goes on to cut one of the most adorable post-fight interviews that you will see this year, ending it with what sounded like a paid advertisement for the Chamber of Commerce of uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, are you fucking kidding me? Brandon Moreno, did you and everybody watching this just become best friends? You fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
1: You remember shortly after Eddie Alvarez won the UFC lightweight title, took it off Rafael dos Anjos, and he showed up at the post-fight press conference already talking some shit on Conor McGregor, and you and I remarked to each other, you know what, this actually might be a lot more fun from a pre-fight promotional standpoint than McGregor versus dos Anjos was and would be. This might be some serious woodwatch territory.
0: Yeah. I I
1: recall it like it was yesterday. Then they show up for this UFC 205 press conference with Eddie Alvarez and Conor McGregor. And lo and behold, turns out that was absolutely true.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was surprised how many people were surprised by the booking of this. Like The uh, the Habib Nurmagomedov army was out in force to... uh, to talk up how he had been screwed or shafted by this, which I understand, and, like, everybody loves Habib. Everybody wants nothing but good things to happen to the Eagle. But I don't think you can be mad about this booking. Uh, I feel like as soon as Conor McGregor beat Nate Diaz in that rematch, we were all like, well, probably the next thing for Conor McGregor is to fight for the lightweight title. And uh, Eddie Alvarez did, in fact, call him out after winning the lightweight title, so this was just kind of, a, you know, ABC matchmaking to me. Uh, and frankly is a fight that I'm excited for because not only do I think Eddie Alvarez and Conor McGregor make beautiful promotional music together, uh, I have no idea what's gonna happen in this fight because Eddie Alvarez is a mean ass dude. Yes, and he is. Arguably is, you know, short of Jose Aldo, who Conor McGregor knocked out in 13 seconds, so we didn't really even get to see much of a fight out of that. Uh, Eddie Alvarez is arguably gonna be the best guy he's fought in the UFC. So I think that it's interesting from that perspective. I think it's an interesting matchup of styles. And frankly, I'm going to come out and say, even though I understand the frustrations of everyone else who would like to see, you know, a a more regulated uh, line of succession. And as it pertains to who gets a lightweight title shot, uh, I'm happy for Eddie Alvarez. Yeah. Who has is a dude who has paid almost more dues than anyone I can think of in this sport uh, as a wanderer before coming to the UFC, fighting everywhere in the world, uh, I'm happy that he will get the the share of the pay-per-view cut for this, which yeah. could be the greatest, the biggest-selling UFC pay-per-view of all time, perhaps. Well, and I think
1: as far as the people being angry about the fight booking, the nature of Conor McGregor's uh, kind of web at this point in the UFC is such that any fight you book for him, somebody's going to be mad about it. You know, Aldo's going to be mad that he's not coming back down to featherweight to defend that title and give him a rematch. Uh, you know, if you, if you fight Aldo, then Nermi's gonna be mad. Uh, you know, making this, uh, going back to the whole champion versus champion, having him fight for the lightweight title thing, if it was a good idea before when he was gonna do it against Rafael Dos Anjos, then I think you kind of have to admit that it's still a good idea now. Um, the, the one kind of, uh, complaint you could make about it, and somebody made it in the Twitter mailbag for me last week was, you got a lightweight champion who hasn't defended the belt yet, and you got a featherweight champion who hasn't defended the belt yet. Basically, are the belts just for show when it comes to this champion versus champion thing, which I would argue, yeah, kind of. Yes. Um, But don't even care.
0: Yeah, and like uh, this is a tough one to complain about for me because this is like a, an awesome fight stylistically. It's an awesome fight between two guys who are pretty good at promoting themselves. Uh Kind of like Nate Diaz, Eddie Alvarez is the sort of dude that Conor McGregor is just flat and not going to get in that guy's head. Like, he is just going to be above that from an athletic standpoint and is going to bring what he does to the table regardless. Uh, and I also can't be mad at the fact that this is a bona fide champion versus champion super fight, the like of which we were promised at the beginning of, what, 2014 when they started the first pay-per-view of the year, dubbing it the year of the super fight? And then we got zero super fights <laughs> out of that year. So, like, it's kind of seems like in certain ways a long time coming to me to get this matchup. And I think, like I said, I'm happy for Eddie Alvarez, and I'm also frankly happy and appreciative of Connor McGregor in I think being the first guy, the first fighter, regardless of of you know weight class or sex that The UFC needs as bad as he needs the UFC and is one of the first people to really use that promotional advantage in a way where it seems like he's kind of spanking the UFC in these negotiations.
1: Well, that's as good a segue as any to ask. Why, since we all agree that this fight is awesome and is totally something that we will gladly pay to watch – Why did it seem at times like the
0: UFC was trying to avoid making it happen? It seems ongoing. It seems like the UFC's efforts to control, corral, and put a leash on Conor McGregor are ongoing. And I think it goes back... A while now, like there's been rumblings, reports, rumors, whatever you want to call them, that that relationship is deteriorating behind the scenes, uh, for a while now. You saw weird things happen where, you know, Conor McGregor would come out and say something outlandish. And then these stories immediately after would start to show up in the press about how the UFC sold out its next trip to Ireland in 14 seconds without Conor McGregor or whatever it was. Uh, and you know, you continue to see that kind of subtle, uh, I don't want to say manipulation, but like subtle uh, usage of the media, the floating of stories, the kind of stuff that the UFC is saying. You saw it in Dana White's tweet, I think, where he res- responded to some fan saying that they weren't going to do the McGregor fight, that it was going to be Alvarez versus uh, Nurmagomedov. And then uh, I think just this week or late last week, a story where he said, no, 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 Ronda Rousey is the biggest star in the history of the UFC. Right. Uh, and, you know, our guy. Patrick Wyman over at Bleacher Report just did kind of an exhaustive statistical analysis, uh, of that very topic and discovered—I don't know if it discovered, but like uh, underscored, I guess the idea that that's not even close to true. That Conor McGregor is bigger in all in almost all measurable ways than anybody else they've had before.
1: Well, and you had the thing we mentioned it in the Breakfast of Champions last week, where the UFC used UFC Tonight on state-run TV over there, uh, to float the idea like okay the fight can't happen conor mcgregor is injured eddie alvarez is go- is gonna fight Nurmi, but he missed the deadline to sign the contract for usc 205 which that's a new one on me the missing the contract signing deadline i didn't know that was really a thing uh and dutifully usc tonight runs with that story and then they are directly contradicted the next week by the people who gave them that story uh I couldn't tell if that was meant to try to put pressure on these guys in contract negotiations to, to sign exactly what – the way, do it the way the UFC wanted them to or if the UFC really did not want to make this fight happen. Because it seems to me, like you said, they, all after all the promise of super fights, this is the one where you feel like you're finally delivering. You ought to be pretty excited
0: to do that. Yeah, it seems inconceivable that the UFC would not want to make this fight happen because it's the arguably – like, the biggest money fight that it could make at this point, short of, you know, putting McGregor out there with George St. Pierre, who is frankly another guy who seems like they're having a weird uh, negotiational time with right now.
1: And it seems like they're dragging that one out, or Dana White specifically is dragging that one out in public way more than he's, you would think he needs to.
0: Yeah, so, like, I don't necessarily buy the idea that Alvarez versus McGregor would be a fight that the UFC would not want to make. It's going to make everybody on board a boatload of money. I just think that... uh The UFC is not used to being in this position in a negotiation where it feels like the fighter has the upper hand. And frankly, like, if the best you can do is a reply to someone else's tweet saying, no, no, we're going to do Nurmagomedov instead, you are getting beat at this thing, man. Like... PR wise you are getting beat and that's a position the UFC is not used to being in. I think they know that the Conor McGregor is holding their feet to the fire in a lot of different ways and I could see that being kind of a bitter pill for them to swallow after so many years of flatly dominating like not only the industry but also fighter negotiations and so like it's understandable for me that they would want to like tamp this thing down a little bit and I think that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, well, but I mean this
1: was the thing that finally made us all say, okay, no, UFC 205, at Madison Square Garden, now it's a big deal. Yeah. Because before it felt like, wait a minute, wasn't this supposed to be some kind of huge celebration uh that MMA was finally sanctioned in New York? You're coming into New York City for the first time. It's going to be this big party, and it was just not feeling that way. Now it is. Now you look at it where you got three title fights at the top of the card, uh, and then after that, you know, Chris Weidman, all Romero, Donald Cerrone, and Kelvin Gaston. God, can you imagine if Cerrone uh versus Robbie Lawler had, had held together uh and Misha Tate versus Raquel Pennington it's kind of looking like maybe the best UFC event at least on paper of
0: all time I will say this Ben card subject to change okay I mean, we have right. still got a couple months before this thing actually takes off but uh yeah uh, no i i i wouldn't be surprised if if by the time this is over it's Kelvin Gastelum versus Lyman Good is the uh, is your main event just cuz everyone else is on a bus that crashes and they are injured or something not dead, just injured. <laughs> okay. Don't look at me that way. All one. right. It got a little dark there. Well, it's going to be a dark winter, man, if UFC 205 falls apart.
1: Yeah. Well, fair enough.
0: Anyway, that's going to do it for round number 2. We'll be right back with round number 3. A couple of facts here via your guy, Mike Bone, over there at MMA Junkie, about Michael Bisping, all of which are impressive and one of which blows my damn mind. Michael Bisping's 15 victories in the UFC middleweight division are the most in that weight class's history. His 19 UFC victories are the most by any winner of The Ultimate Fighter and his 26 UFC appearances are the most of any uh, tough winner. And this is the one that really blows my mind. If he beats Dan Henderson on Saturday night at UFC 204, he will have 20 victories in the UFC, the most, all-time, period. That does kind of blow your that damn mind, doesn't fucking it? fucking mind-blowing, is it not? Wow. So it would seem to be an awful
1: lot on the line for your boy Michael Bisping here at UFC 204. At the same time, Chad,
0: allow me to mumble almost to myself, you can't rewrite history. No, you cannot. Uh, the UFC has been tenacious, I guess you would say, in advertising this one. Although maybe it just feels that way because we've had a UFC every Saturday night going back to the time that Noah was still building the ark. Uh but it seems like we've seen a lot of ads yeah. for UFC Noah 204. Noah looked up from his hammering and said, why are they showing commercials in between the commercials? Yeah. <laughs> uh, back then, Dan Henderson was 36 years old. <laughs> uh, yeah, the UFC has, has come out in force to try to sell this UFC 204. Uh, and, you know, pretty, pretty well done, I thought, for the most part on those commercials. Though Dan Henderson is not the fiery individual that you want to end. You want to be the hammer at the end of your commercial. Him going... <laughs> I don't know why Mike wants to find me again. Can't rewrite history. She's <laughs> like, wait, what did I? Maybe they want you to rewind to listen again. Because that's it. It's like a power move of talking quieter. So yeah. the other person Everybody starts has to, to lean, lean into you. forward. Yeah, I get it. Well, I mean,
1: narrative wise, and in terms of trying to find a way to package this one, it's, Already kind of handed to you on a silver platter if you're the UFC. Revenge. (laughs) Yes.
0: The ultimate revenge.
1: And it has so many great revenge elements to it because not only did Dan Henderson knock him out and just meme the hell out of Michael Bisping in ways that were just, they were showing up on the UG for months afterwards. I believe
0: Dan Henderson still uses the silhouette of him doing the flying punch to Michael Bisping's jaw Uh, on his personal merchandise to this day. That's become like his personal brand logo. Yeah, it's his NBA logo. It's (laughs) his version of Jerry West on the NBA logo. Plus,
1: you do have that added element of that extra punch, which he even admitted afterwards he didn't really have to do that. (laughs) And he might not have done it to somebody else, but he did it because it was Bisping and he disliked him.
0: Yeah, plus you got the Bisping interview saying at the end of this one, when Dan Henderson is unconscious, he will give him an extra blow, which is just for the perverts out there. You know, Susie Coozy loves that one.
1: Well, and, you know, with Michael Bisping's history of, remember when he totally illegally kneed uh, Jorge Rivera in the head in a fight that was a kind of a heated rivalry beforehand, when he says, like, hey, if I knock him out, I'm going to look for an opportunity to hit him one more time completely unnecessarily, I believe him. You know, that is one thing that I could see him doing there. Um, so that does add a little fuel to the
0: fire here. Now, we talked about... Uh, the UFC's new direction in matchmaking. We we mentioned earlier in the show whether or not the titles are basically uh, ornaments uh, for decorate, decorative purposes. In that Conor McGregor uh, Eddie Alvarez fight, you know I think you can see with stuff like bringing CM Punk to the UFC this kind of direction of the UFC going for promotion over you know substance. Is this one of those fights? And are we okay with that as a you know what otherwise might be. Uh, you know, business-as-usual middleweight title shot, or does this one feel somehow cheap to us? No, I mean, this
1: definitely is... I don't see how you can make an argument that this is not a reaching past the contender that makes sense to the contender that will sell. You know, that's what this is. is trying to find a a more marketable fight uh, rather than the one that, from a ranking standpoint, makes the most logical sense. But I guess I am okay with it. And part of it, I think... Michael Bispin kind of convinced me when he got on TV and explained that the reason he wanted this was not only to fulfill his revenge fantasy against Dan Henderson, but also because, hey, Henderson's old, man. He's going to be out of here before you know it. He's already said that win or lose, he's retiring on this one, um, which if he wins, I'll be really interested to see if he sticks with that. Uh, but he said, you know, Bisping came out and said, Jacare, you know, Weidman, those other guys, Rockhold, even for a rematch. They're all still going to be around in six months. They're not going anywhere, but Dan Henderson, I got to get him for a retires, otherwise I'll never get my revenge on him. Okay. That's enough for me. You convinced me. Um, plus it's just going to be fun to watch, man.
0: Yeah, it is going to be fun to watch. Uh, I feel somewhat less convinced, uh, though I'm, you know, mostly okay with it for the fun to watch, hashtag would watch, hashtag fun fights uh, aspect of this. The other thing that makes me feel kind of okay with it is that, you know, from the moment that Bisping won the title from Rockhold in what was a short notice makeshift fight to begin with, because Chris Weidman had, uh, you know, a potentially long lasting back injury, neck injury, spinal injury. Backside of the body well, style injury. What was it?
1: It was a n- neck,
0: neck injury. injury but yeah. then it's to the spine part yes, of the neck. Yeah. The spine part of the neck, which is the important part. Yes. The rest of it is just meat for the most part. Uh, <laughs> Some fluid. Yeah. So we had, we had also, we had, we were already off the rails, I guess you could say, by the time Michael Bisping won the title. So I'm okay with this as like more of a continued detour to that. And the thing that makes me feel can, you know, a- able to make peace with this one specifically is that like the middleweight division is going to get back on track starting right now because you had a situation where Yoel Romero was suspended. Jacare Souza had had knee surgery. Chris Weidman was injured. So a lot of guys in the top five had been out. And at this point dating back to Derek Brunson's win over Uriah Hall, uh you know several weeks ago, you are now gonna have a situation where every guy in the UFC middleweight top ten is gonna fight before the end of the year except Anderson Silva, and he just fought at uh UFC two hundred. Uh and that to me makes it feel like no matter what happens, we're gonna get some forward momentum here. You know, we're gonna get a winner between uh Chris Wideman and UL Romero. We're gonna get a winner. Hopefully. Hopefully all these damn fights won't end in and draws because that would be bad uh, we're gonna get a winner between Luke Rockhold and Jacare Souza. We're gonna get a winner between Vitor Belfort and uh, uh, who's Vitor fighting? Uh, he's fighting Musasi. Yeah, is that on this card, Sweet and Sassy. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the co-main event on this card. So you're gonna get a winner there. You know, Robert Whitaker is booked for the uh, for the Australia card. So that, that I just named pretty much the top seven fighters in this division, with the exception of Silva. So like, like it or not, in the wake of this fight, you're gonna have probably a lot of options and a clear-cut direction for the middleweight division, unless Michael Bisping loses to Dan Henderson and Dan Henderson retires with the belt. At which point, free for all. You gotta, yeah, might as well just have a Royal Rumble style match to figure this out.
1: New Year's Eve one night tournament to claim the middleweight title, or we just give that one to Conor McGregor too. What do you throw think him in
0: that? the mix at least, man. Put him in the draw. <laughs>
1: You know, give him a buy. Maybe yes. give him a buy and give him first a first round, round
0: buy, and then he fights Vanderlei in the second round. <laughs> I'm all for it. Well, you know,
1: looking at the the UFC's official rankings, which, as you mentioned earlier, are bullshit. I see Dan Henderson is now ranked 13th. Seems he has dropped a spot, and Tim Kennedy went up a
0: spot okay. to rank number yeah. 12. Even Makes though perfect sense, neither one of them has spot. Makes perfect in sense. like
1: months. So yeah, I don't know what's happening there. Um, what do you What do you think the odds are? Let's say, let's start from the hypothetical that Dan Henderson wins. Say he knocks out Michael Bisping. Um, What do you think the odds are that he really follows through on that plan to retire?
0: Uh, Slim, probably. I mean, Dan Henderson is a guy who seemed like we were going to have to drag him away, kicking and screaming from this thing to begin with. It would be the perfect storybook ending for the guy's career to do that. But like we've talked about time and time again on this show, you feel like that would be... A thing that to the fighter brain would be like, I still got it. I'm the champ. Can't walk away now. I'm the damn champ. Plus, we know. Call out we- Conor McGregor, get on the biggest pay per view of the year, you know, make it a few extra million to take home to to Northern California, wherever and, he lives.
1: I think he lives uh, outside San Diego. We've had this
0: same conversation before.
1: Yeah. I have no idea where, where, uh, where Temecula is. It's out in the desert where okay. you gotta, sometimes there's high winds and you gotta take a trampoline off your roof. I'll Uh, take your word. Well, the trampoline part, I know,
0: is true. I'll take your word for the general vicinity of uh, Temecula.
1: We've talked before, Dan Henderson is a guy who happens to like money. So if you were the champ, man, it would be easy to talk yourself into just one more. Wouldn't it? It would. What are the odds on this thing?
0: I feel like the most likely outcome here is that Michael Bisping wins a Michael Bisping-style decision over Dan Henderson. He's about a two-to-one favorite. Yeah, that makes sense. i say they got the H-bomb out there, though. The equalizer. That's right. The great equalizer. Now, what do you think? Do you think that
1: uh, a loss against Michael Bisping here, say it's a close decision loss and like maybe a frustrating one where he just kind of can't put his hands on Michael Bisping. Do you think that increases or decreases the chances that he actually retires?
0: I think it increases it in a weird way. I mean, well, I mean as compared to him winning the title, I think it increases it. This is the first time we've really heard Dan Henderson like uh, specifically set a date you know, for his retirement. So that makes me feel like perhaps he is serious. Uh, Even though there are some also quotes of him floating around, I believe when he was on the severe MMA podcast uh, with the fellows across the pond of him saying that he feels like his body could keep going for another two or three years, but he's put it through enough and it's time to walk away. No, Dan, no. Yeah. So uh, any and all retirement announcements in this sport, obviously need to be taken with a grain of salt, but with Dan Anderson, you hope, you know, one way or another, he finds his way to a, a a productive post-UFC life.
1: Now, before we end our discussion on this, I think we should talk a little bit about Michael Bisping. You talked about his uh, kind of surprising stats uh, at the top of this round. But it, when you think about it, the stakes for him are extremely high here, just because of the way the MMA community kind of views Michael Bisping. We've said before that he's one of those guys who, uh, for a long time, was better than people were willing to give him credit for because they just didn't like his personality and he can come off kind of brash at times. Uh, So they were not giving him as much credit as he deserved for being a really, really good fighter. But now that you got the middleweight title and you got it kind of filling in and winning a fight nobody thought you were going to win, and then you kind of uh, managed to avoid some of the real tough contenders who were sitting right there at middleweight uh, to fight an old, and we do mean literally old, rival, Um, if you you don't win that fight, if you don't even hold on to the middleweight title for one defense here as Michael Bisping, it seems like it'll only feed that narrative that he was never that good, even though the stats kind of tell you otherwise.
0: Yeah, especially you don't want to get knocked out like little Mac and Mike Tyson's punch out. You don't want that to happen if you're Michael Bisping, because then that you're just a meme all over again. If that happens, but I think you're right. I think that there's even though this is kind of a an off the grid style matchup and not necessarily one of the top contenders in this division, there's a lot of uh, you know uh, a lot to prove for Michael Bisping by crafting a serious. And like de- defense of the title to, to, so it doesn't just look like, oh, you lucked out against Luke Rockhold and then you immediately got knocked out by 46 year old Dan Henderson or whatever. So, yeah, like that's a pretty big deal for Michael Bisping, especially considering, as we've talked about on this show in the past, his like kind of surprising face turn a little bit. Like, not, he didn't necessarily change his waves as I think we saw at the post fight press conference after he won the title, but like we have all. Even the most begrudging of us kind of offered Michael Bisping our respect at this point because of that, you know, the longevity of his UFC career because he's been more successful than I think we thought he would be because he he has those kind of eye popping stats now uh, that we've all kind of come around on Michael Bisping and it would be like a feel good moment for him to solidify himself as the champion and beat Dan Henderson here. And you know, above and beyond that, Ben, imagine if I would have told you several years ago, Mike Bisping, is not, you know, he's going to win five fights in a row in the UFC, become the champion, and in order, beat Anderson Silva, Luke Rockhold, and Dan Henderson. Jesus Christ. I mean, that's better than we had ever hoped or dreamed for the guy, or dreaded, depending on how you looked at it. <laughs> yeah, you, absolutely.
1: And yet, you got the sense that if you told Michael Bisping that would happen, he'd be like, yeah, Absolutely. Of
0: I, I have visualized it. I have, I have imagined it, and so it will be. I'm manifesting it as we speak. <laughs> All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, this week, I'm just saying, in solidarity with our brothers across the ocean, how about you and me? We DVR UFC 204, and we watch it at 3 o'clock in the morning here in the one true time zone of Montana I feel like you and we're always complaining about how late these UFCs go and how many commercials there are commercials within commercials. And then you think about what the folks over in the UK and Europe have to go through every single UFC event, basically. And man, if you are staying up that late to watch the UFC on the regular, you are some shitty and wild men. And my hat is off to you. And it kind of makes us seem like wimps complaining about getting to bed midnight one those guys are that, like you're just starting the party
1: yeah. in Europe. That's true. That's why I always think when I hear somebody telling me about how they are watching at 6 a.m. in Denmark and they've been up for hours watching it, I think I just wouldn't. Yeah, I'd just DVR I, every single show. I've never watched one live.
0: How about this time, you and me? I'm just saying we 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 do this one European style. I'm just saying, we get some crisps. No <laughs> crisps, huh? Yeah, we'll get some crisps, some vinegar. What are you even no, saying? No, that's not right what they now. put on their crisps over have, there, vinegar. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Malt vinegar? I don't know. Malt you're saying you're you're turning down my offer to do this up European style? I'm going to I'm going to tell you that I'll
1: think about it, but really I've already decided that the answer is no. I'm just saying Just saying. Well, Ted, I'm just saying, I know you saw on the undercard of UFC Fight Night 96, my dude, Curtis Razor Blades.
0: Fictional UFC heavyweight, heavyweight, UFC creative fighter heavyweight, (laughs) Curtis Blades.
1: The UFC fighter most likely to turn out to just be a video game character, Curtis Blades, fighting out of nowhere, Oklahoma. Uh, Somebody must have put some tokens in the machine, Chad, because he showed up and beat Cody East via TKO. Uh... And a TKO that included elbowing him in the head until his head turned into uh, a little mini Quato from uh, Total Recall. I'm just saying, Curtis Razorblades, I think you might be my guy. Oh, I think you might be one of my guys. One
0: of your guys in the heavyweight division. That's I'm also, exciting.
1: though, just saying, if it turns out that his name is actually like, you know, emmanuel stinkowitz and he 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 was a nerd all through high school and then he reached a point where he decided you know what emmanuel stinkowitz is dead curtis razor blades lives on what don draper style i would not be surprised and i would not blame him one single bit me either man the only complaint you could lodge against him was that he maybe went a little over the top (laughs)
0: look man you're not going to get to the top as the stink stinkowitz (laughs) you need to be the razor blades just saying that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happens at UFC 204, and we'll look ahead to the next is, – is the next week the week that we get a damn break? Or is there a is there a UFC event the following week? Let's see. Thing? The Let's the
1: see. next one after that is Llamas versus Penn on the 15th.
0: Okay. Well, we'll look ahead to that one. We'll break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 204. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.
1: You know who's on that Lama's pen card? Who's that? The Black Beast. Oh! That's why he was over in Manila, or the Philippines, I mean, uh, maybe in Manila, I don't know, but recording about the cabs over there...